Carl Stewart is an investment advisor representative of Carl Stewart Investment Advisor Incorporated. Call or text Carl now at 512-836-0590. Now, here's Carl. Good afternoon and welcome to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. Coming up on our 29th anniversary, Money Talk is a broadcast about the world of financial and investment planning where you always determine our agenda by calling or texting 512-836-0590. You may listen online right now at newsradioklbj.com or go there at your convenience and download previous broadcasts. You just go to the website, go to the schedule, and then to the weekend hosts. Also, this Thursday after the news is 6 p.m., we will rebroadcast today's show, and you can also download the free app SoundCloud and listen to previous broadcasts as well. It's always a terrific idea to call or text at the beginning of the hour, giving me ample time to do my best to answer your question. As regular listeners know, my priorities are I take today's calls first, and then I take today's texts second, and then if I have any texts that I haven't fully answered, I take those third. Right now, we have no holdover texts, and the lines are all available, 512-836-0590. Every Saturday, I sit down before the broadcast, and I chart out a number of indicators for the stock and bond market, and I keep the one from the previous week. And the reason I bring this up today is it's just a remarkable shift that happened this week. You cannot own an index, but you can own a mutual fund or an exchange-traded fund that follows an index. And so I try to use these from different providers so as to not show any bias. So a year a year ago, last week, the Vanguard total stock market had a year-to-date return of 7.48. Today, it has a year-to-date return of 13.98. The SPY, it's a Standard and Poor's 500 put out by State Street, last week was up 8.59 year-to-date. Now it's 14.94. And the Fidelity NASDAQ exchange-traded fund, symbol O-N-E-Q, last week was up 22.35% year-to-date. And an amazing this week up 30.55. Even the beleaguered international stocks participated Last week, on a year-to-date basis, the Vanguard XUS, VXUS ETF, had a return year-to-date of 0.57%, and now it is 6.38%. But it doesn't stop there, because we also had a terrific week in the bond market. The 10-year Treasury went from an approximate yield to maturity of 5% to about 4.5%. So the iShares AG AGG, that seeks to follow the Bloomberg Aggregate Bond Index, last week had a total ne- had a negative return of 2.29%, now z- minus 0.31. The largest bond fund, my understanding, is Vanguard's Total bond market ETF BND. Last week it was uh, down 2.13%. This week, year to date, 0. Point, I beg your pardon, minus 0.30. So you can see across the board, it was a terrific week for stocks and bonds. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512 
836-0590. I have some, I think, really important and interesting bloviation material today, and I'm going to share it with you. Luckily, it comes in small bites so that if you call or text, I'll be able to take your call or text and not continue to bloviate. And this really is, the term, the title is Family Wealth Management, Tips for a Successful Transition Between Generations. And I owe my colleague, Lindsay, credit for finding this. It comes from something called Massachusetts Financial Services, MFS Heritage Planning. Passing on wealth, and you may be listening and say, Carl, what difference does this make? I'm not a wealthy person. I think this is the term wealth in the broadest sense. If you're a homeowner uh, and upon your demise, or if you're married upon your demise and your spouse's demise, your kids are going to get the home and you have considerable equity in the home, there you have it then you have wealth to pass on. If you have uh, a 401k plan or an IRA and you pass away and there's a positive balance in there, there's a balance in there, then you have wealth. So I think what I'm about to share with you is relevant for all of us. And I will tell you as I go through it, I have sadly witnessed some of these these things go awry in uh, my 45 years in practice. Passing on wealth is not just about getting financial assets to future generations. It's also about passing on what you think is important and avoiding damage to your children's relationships with each other. Unfortunately, research shows that for many families, the process goes awry. Here are some steps you can take to try to avoid common and costly mistakes while increasing the likelihood that your estate transfers successfully and lasts through another generation. And after each bullet point, I'm going to guess what I'm going to do. Give the number, 512-836-0590, or you can text newsradioklbj.com. Avoid this unfortunate inheritance situation. It's not an uncommon scenario. The parents pass away and leave the family home to the children. Joe, Bill, and Marie. Joe wants to keep the house and live in it to preserve the homestead for generations. Bill is fine with that as long as Joe can buy out Bill's share. Marie insists they sell the home because the market is hot and there's a good profit to be made. And so the fighting begins. Certainly no family likes to think that the parent's legacy will turn into a tussle over assets. Yet it happens all too often. I have absolutely seen this because if you have more than one child, the odds that all of them will want exactly the same thing and that they all have the same financial capabilities. I see this happen also with vacation homes and other properties where, because let's just use the vacation home. The, the kids grew up going there every summer and, have, and really enjoy it. One child is broke and wants to, wants to sell it and get the money. Uh, and uh, another child wants to keep it, but does not have assets enough to buy out the first child. And on and on it goes, and it can create a tremendous amount of unhappiness and strain. 512-836-0590. Second bullet point. Understand why most transfers fail. While wealth transfers fail for many reasons, the top explanation is simple. Lack of communication. I thought this was really interesting. Most parents are uncomfortable discussing money with their children. Count me in. 
Perhaps we fear such talks will reveal children's greed, or that by talking about inheritance, the kids will be less motivated to strive in life. Maybe parents believe such a discussion would be all about trusts, tax strategies, and insurance policies. While your financial advisor or investment professional, if you have one, didn't have to have one, might use these tools to achieve your wealth transfer goals, the real purpose of talking with your heirs ahead of time is to express the impact you hope the assets will have, turn the page, on your family and community, both now and after you're gone. Pointed communication of what you would like to accomplish with the assets can help legacies endure for generations. And I, I just said count me in because I find it uncomfortable. And uh, again, my colleague Lindsay, who gave me this, and I were attending a session at a conference in Tampa a couple of weeks ago. And one of the uh, persons who does family meetings, she happens to be a really a high-level investment advisor in Dallas, she said, you don't have to talk numbers. If you don't want to express the dollar value of your wealth, that's fine. That's your business. But it doesn't mean you can't have these kinds of conversations. All our lines are available. We have no text coming in, 512-836-0590. Plan to avoid mistakes. Before you talk with family members about your legacy, it's critical to fully consider all of your potential beneficiaries. Map out and identify all of your immediate and extended family members so that you will have a clear picture of whom you and your financial advisor or investment professional or on your own may want to plan for. Perhaps you have a child who requires custodial care when you're gone, or you may have elderly parents who you, you hope to support financially if you predecease them. Before you talk with your heirs, take time to document specific details, including names, addresses, and contact numbers, and then use that map as a basis for planning conversation with your attorney, your tax professional, financial advisor, or investment professional. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. It's time for me to take a break. It's a perfect time for you to call or text 512-836-0590. I'll be back. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on newsradioklbj.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. We're here this afternoon until 5. When you have a question, call or text 512-836-0590. Doug, you're on the air. How may I help? Uh, yeah, hi Carl. Hi. Um last week you were uh talking about uh a Barron's article yes. or articles that um the cover story was about uh possibly being the time to buy bonds. Yes. And you mentioned um, multi-sector uh, yes. bond funds. Yes, I did. Can, can you, uh, how would you describe a multi-sector yeah. bond fund yeah, for that's someone ter- who, yeah. who, you know, uh, doesn't sure. normally buy bond funds? Sure. So it, I'm using the Morningstar def- uh I don't definitions, I guess, the categories is the word I'm looking for, because they're as good as any I've found. Uh, and so they have uh, 
some of the categories include core and core plus and multi-sector. And I'm going to answer your question. But core, uh, in my experience, tend to come close to matching the Bloomberg Ag. They tend to be investment grades. They can buy treasuries. They can buy agencies. They can buy a, a high-quality asset backs. Uh, but um, that's pretty much where their shopping list is. And then Core Plus, uh, as the name kind of implies, is it can buy the same kinds of bonds that Core does, but it has a broader, uh, shall we say, shopping list. It can go lower in the in the in the credit stack, if you will. And then the multi-sector really uh, allows the managers to move between investment grade, and non-investment grade, high yield, asset-backed securities, governments, government agencies, foreign securities. It really is a go-anywhere bond fund. And because you're a regular listener, I want to add for, for other people, I'm not a fan of pure high-yield bond funds. And the reason for that is they're extremely high positive correlation to equities. The last time I checked, high-yield bonds had a 0.84 correlation to large-cap stocks, with 1.0 being perfect. So when the stock market declines, the odds are really high that so will your bond fund. And that's not a reason to buy a bond fund, in my opinion. So if you have high-yield bonds, then you really need to consider that, in my view, as part of your equity allocation. So the multi-sector fund that I've used for several years can go up to 30, I think it's 30 or 35 percent high yield. But they don't do that regularly unless they think that high yield is particularly attractive. So in a recent uh, conversation that I had with the portfolio manager, managers, they said, we don't think that the pickup in yield in high yield bonds is sufficient to justify the risk. We see more value in investment grade bonds. So that gives the manager the maximum flexibility. It certainly would not be where I would put all of my money. If I had a choice, if I were going to add bond funds, uh, I my view today is, and, and this is my view today, and it's, it is this. I'd have a short-term bond fund, I'd have a core bond fund, and I'd have a multi-sector fund. Now, until this week, the only one that had a positive return year to date was the short-term and that's because short-term rates are so high with this inverted yield curve that it was, you know, had a return around 4% when, and right now it's 5% year-to-date, while the other ones were virtually flat or negative. The ag was down 2%. And that, that multi-sector through yesterday is uh, the returns 4.01%. But if you go and look at the the one that I like on Morningstar that what they call the TTM the twelve the trailing twelve month yield meaning the dividend paid out over the last twelve months divided by the current share price was about seven percent so uh, that's what I think of as a multi sector uh, bond fund it really uh, gives the active management team the flexibility to to go wherever they want. Well, in, in that was uh, when I read those articles, and um, I, there were like three of them, I think. Yeah. And uh, I, I mean, I think I understood what they were saying, but that's I, I kind of wanted to call the expert yeah. just to <laughs> make sure there's nothing I'm missing here. No, uh, you're not missing anything. I mean, if it's, I will tell you 
there, it has a chance, this strategy has a chance to be more defensive than a core bond fund in a rising rate environment. I mean, a, a, if you have a bad market like last year for bonds, your short fund is going to do better than the core bond fund, and your multi-sector fund is going to do better than the core bond fund. Now, the multi-sector might have a negative return, but remember, the ag was down over 13% last year. So, you know, it's that's why I like the, having the, the three different uh, strategies. But, but isn't, isn't one of the points of that article was that there's been a, a historical or run of bad years for bonds, bond funds? That's I actually no, it hasn't. I mean, until until the Fed started raising rates, bond funds were terrific because well, we had. What, well, I thought it said they were down for. A couple well, they were. Years. They're down last year, but and you know rates peaked in 1981 at something like 15 percent, and dropped all the way down to one and change. It was a fantastic period. Last year was the worst year to have 60% in stocks and 40% in investment-grade bonds in about 40 years because both bonds went down and stocks. But frankly, I have if you're a regular listener, I've not been a bond fan for several years because rates were so low. I was concerned that eventually rates would rise and prices would fall, and it turned out that's exactly what happened last year. And now, if I've got a 10-year treasury at 45 or 5 and I get investment-grade bonds at 6 and I get a multi-sector at 7 if rates go up, I have a lot less price risk. Okay. okay? I just, I mean, when I read that article yeah. or somewhere in there, it said, yeah. it said that the odds of rate hikes increasing are, are small. Yeah, well, that would be a good reason to buy bonds. And I'm going to, if you want to keep talking with uh, Garrett, would you put uh, Doug on hold, please? We're at the bottom of the hour, uh, and it's a great time to call or text 512-836-0590. Stay around for the second half of Money Talk. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on newsradioklbj.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. We're here for the next half hour or so. When you have a question, call or text 512-836-0590. You may listen online at newsradioklbj.com or go down go there and download previous broadcasts. And you can also go to SoundCloud, the free app, and download broadcasts. And this coming Thursday after the news at 6 p.m., we will rebroadcast today's show, 512-836-0590. Doug, I think you weren't uh, finished with your thoughts. Please continue. Well, um, you know, one of the first things it says in the main article, it says supposedly ultra-safe treasuries are on track to lose money for three consecutive years declining 42% over that period. Hmm. So well, so the last 3 years have have not been good. Yeah, I I'm sorry. I just, that's I'm I don't have the data in front of me. Uh, so uh, and again, I've told you that I that I've been I've had a in my in my portfolio an extreme underweighting uh, in bonds uh, and added uh, gold 3 years ago and I've added back in uh, bonds. I had a what was it, a thirteen percent allocation, and now I have a twenty. So you know, there's a pretty good history that the return that you get on a bond has a lot to do with what the in, the income return was when you buy it. 
So, you know, I, I, I'm surprised that uh, bonds had 30-some percent because it was down 13 last year. But I just don't have the data in front of me. So I, I can't disagree with you because I don't know. Sure, anything, sure. Anything? Well, here's, here's really my main question. I didn't yeah. mean to take up so much of your time. Yeah. But, uh, you know, in those articles, they, they list a number of uh, presumably, it looked like, actively managed bond funds. Yeah. Would would pretty much most of those, I mean, they're t- PIMCO and BlackRock, and then sure. they have another one called Osterweiss. Would would all of those, I mean, if, if uh, I know you don't make recommendations, I but don't. Barron's right. kind of does from time to time. Yeah, they do. Um, would Can we figure that if it's in Barron's, and they are essentially recommending it, that they're all pretty reasonable investments. I would think that's a fair assumption. Um, the Barons is not a jur- it's not journalism; it's opinion. There's no question about that. It's not the Wall Street Journal uh, away from the opinion page. It's, re- it's oh, the same okay. company, but Barons really is an- aimed for people who have interest in the financial markets, and they have they have regular columnists, and then they also have individual stories. I read it every Saturday online. And they will. I mean, they're, today they're talking about private credit funds, and they highlight four or five of them. That's that's traditionally it. Now, they would, of course, say you're on your own uh, in terms of, of, of you know how you do and what you do. But there, my experience is that they're not going to recommend anything. But when they highlight something, they're not going to. It's not going to be way out in left field. That's my experience. Okay. All right. Okay. All righty. Okay, thanks for calling. You're listening well, to Money you. Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. I got this text. Carl, has the ACH hiccup seen yesterday affected Bank of America, Chase, etc. been addressed? Well, first of all, um, I didn't know that that occurred yesterday, and it wasn't in, I read today's uh, Wall Street Journal and I did not see that in there, so I'm sorry I can't be helpful with you for, with you uh, for you with that because I just don't see I didn't see that in the financial press. My guess is that ACH is fixed because it's so important. But what we're talking ACH stands for automated clearinghouse, and a lot of people will have uh, money taken out of their portfolio, say on a monthly basis for income purposes or have money taken out of their checking or savings account and invested in their portfolio, and that's done through this HCH process. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Carl, is there a reasonable strategy to draw down from a retirement account to make additional principal payments on the mortgage? We're early in retirement. Okay, so, of course, the reason, if you're looking at it just purely mathematically, what you believe is that the future returns in your retirement account, and they'll come out and you'll pay income tax on it, will be not as good as or significantly less than the cost of your mortgage. Because if you're early in retirement, and you're making mortgage payments, as you know, in the early years when you made those payments, and I'm assuming you've had the mortgage for some time, 
you were paying a lot of that monthly payment was interest. And in the later years, a lot of it is principal. So the real interest you're paying diminishes over time. But if you're doing this for purely, we're, we want to be retired and be debt-free, I get that. Uh, and I, you may not be able to justify it, particularly if your mortgage is a 3 4 even a 5% mortgage. But I'm not answering your question. So you can dollar cost average out of your retirement account uh, and with an eye to your tax bracket. So if you're in the 22 or 24% tax bracket married finally jointly and taking more money out doesn't throw you into the 30 whatever it is bracket, well, then that's not a big deal. If you're in the 15% bracket and the next bracket's 22, that is a big deal. So you want to take money out in such a fashion that combined with other sources of income, dividends, interest, social security, or pension income, that you're not doing this in a tax-inefficient manner. Having said that, if you have a retirement account and it's in a balanced portfolio of, of mutual funds, then you know that I believe you want to have an asset allocation because that really is going to drive both your risk and your return. And I would want to take money out regularly in such a fashion that I sustain the same asset allocation. So if I had a traditional 60% stock, 40% bond asset allocation in my retirement account, I'd want to take money out monthly or quarterly so as to sustain that. And the reason is not only that it drives risk and return, but it also causes you to regularly rebalance your retirement account. So uh, if you have a year where your stocks do extremely well, your stock funds, and you're at 65% stocks, and they're by definition 35% bonds, you would take more of the money from the stock funds. And conversely, if you're in a year where stocks do worse than bonds, and now you're in fit, now you're in 45% bonds and 55% stocks, and your allocation targets 60/40, you take more from the bond funds. But I was, but you can do it over time, um, and pay attention to the taxes, or you can do it all at once. Um, I'm okay either way because we can't predict the future. Uh, no one knew uh, at the beginning of 2022. Uh, how bad things were going to be, and no one knew at the beginning of 2023 that the first seven months were going to be so good for stocks. And so, if you want to, if you want to play the uh, cowardly way, uh, and I'm being facetious there, take it out a little bit at a time. Thanks for the text. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Here's a text. Hi, Carl. Great show. Thank you. Can you talk about value stocks and P.E. ratio? I always thought these stocks were less volatile and more consistent in returns. I am missing something. <laughs> you mean, am I missing something, too? <laughs> well, here's the deal. Historically, one way of looking at the relative expensiveness, or if that's a word, or cheapness, and I think that's a word, of a particular stock is to look at its price-earnings ratio. What the heck is that? So if you assume that the company is profitable, they have net income, and that income is expressed on a per-share basis, and then you have the price of the stock. So if a company's net income for the last 12 months, the last four quarters, 
came out to be $2 a share, and the stock was priced at $20 a share, then that stock is a P.E. ratio of, of 2 into 20 is 10. That's at 10 times earnings, okay? If the stock were $40 a share and the earnings were $2 a share in the previous four quarters, that's a price-earnings ratio of 20. Now, the theory goes, the higher the price-earnings ratio, the greater the growth investors are anticipating, but also the greater volatility and risk. And that probably holds true over long periods of time, but you can be out of favor with value stocks for a long time. That certainly was the case uh, from 1995 to 1999 when I'm thinking of a very large value fund in 1999 had a return of about 3%, and Janus Global Technology had a return of over 100%. But names like Cisco Systems and Microsoft and others were skyrocketing, and none of those were considered value stocks. So they may be less volatile in terms of their up and down movement, but they can take a long nap. And then after the so-called dot-com bubble burst in March of 2000, we had this period until the global financial crisis began in, in, in earnest in 2008, where so-called value stocks outperformed growth stocks. So you, you know where I'm going with this. The, the volatility is one measure but overall performance is another. We've been through a period until last year where they call them the Magnificent Seven stocks really drove the market. I was looking at this today in preparation for the show. Let me see if I can find it. This is a good example right here. The Standard & Poor 500 Equal Weight Index. That means giving each of the 500 stocks equal weight in the index is down to this was this is as uh, this is as of October 30th this was written the S&P 500 equal weight index is down 4.2% year to date versus the standard and poor 500 which is cap weighted year to date gain of 9% through October 25th the spread of of 13.2 percentage points between the two was the most extreme it has been in favor of the cap weighted index 205 trading days into a year since at least 1990 when the equal weight index data began. So, yeah, you may have less volatility, but you may also have lower returns over time. So I know there's a big argument in the academy about whether cap-weighted versus non-cap-weighted, value versus growth. I just have been around long enough to know that there are going to be various seasons in the stock market. So I have a core of a cap-weighted total stock market index, or an S&P 500, and then I build around that. So they may be less volatile, but they also may be lower returning over time. So that's the answer. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. We're down to our last quarter hour. If you have a question, call or text 512-836-0590. I'll be back. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on NewsRadioKLBJ.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ, 
If you have a question, call or text 512-836-0590. Here is a text. Carl, how do you estimate your tax bracket for the purposes of drawing down from retirement accounts, etc., when you have investments that you don't know what the taxable income and distributions will be until the 1099 hits in January? So what we're talking about, this goes back to an earlier text question about taking money out of your retirement plan to pay down your mortgage. So here's my experience. Mutual funds have histories of capital gains distributions. Now, yes, there are outlier years, but they're seldom. And you can actually get the dividend history and the capital gains distribution history of mutual funds. And I find, then, say, in actively managed stock funds, that it's very common for the distributed capital gain to be in the 3 to 5% range of the value of the net asset value of the shares or the value of the fund. And if you're talking about bond funds, you can also get the dividend history on that as well. And the tax brackets are broad. So if you're married filing jointly, you can make from $22,000 to $89,450 and be in the same bracket, 12%. You can make from $89,450 all the way up to $190,750 of taxable income. And that amount is taxed at 22%. And then you can go from $190,750 to $364,200, and you only go from 22 to 24% on that amount. So you have to get above $364,200 to $462,500 for the big jump at 32%. And then the next jump's three more points at 35 So those are broad brackets. So you can look at the historical distribution characteristics of the funds you own. Is there a risk that there'll be an outlying year and the capital gains will be uh, larger than anticipated? Yeah, probably not the dividends though. Well, the capital gains fortunately are at a a even broader, broader, uh, well, I would say a bracket. So for example, if you're married finally jointly and your income, including, you know, dividends, interest, what have you, is under 89,000 your tax rate for capital gains is zero. If it's over 40 if it's over 89,000 but not over $553,000 is 15%, okay? So, yes, you need to pay attention to it, but I in my experience it's less of an issue than you might anticipate. Good question. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ, call or text 512 512- Eight three six zero five ninety. Here is a text. Hi, Carl. What is your current opinion on a ten percent allocation to a short-term inflation-protected ETF as compared to a multi-sector core or core plus bond fund? Um, pretty different. Uh, that, and I'm not opposed to the short-term ETF. I know, and again, of course, I'm not recommending. I know that. There's an iShares STIP, um, but it has, it's been disappointing in terms of um, we've had sharply rising inflation, but the returns, as I recall, I used to track them on that fund, were not significantly different 
from the rest of the bond funds. And that was because not only did we have inflation, but we had a huge change in Fed policy. And so we had, was it 11 or I forget how many increases in the Fed funds rate. And that sharp increase uh, meant that uh, that tips couldn't overcome that. The Treasury inflation securities couldn't overcome that. They had negative returns as well. Uh, now, how do I feel about a 10% allocation? I guess the answer would be it depends on what my overall allocation to fixed income is. If I've got it, if I'm at 20%, then putting 10% in short-term inflation would be too much. If I'm at 40% bonds and I want to put 10% in, which is 25% of my bond allocation, am I okay with that? Yes, because you're certainly going to get credit quality because it's going to be probably invested in Treasury inflation-protected securities. I don't know that because there could be other tips. It's probably going to be domestic, so you're not taking any currency risk. And, of course, if you buy the fund or the ETF, you have full liquidity. Um, so I'm not... I'm not a, I don't have a problem with that. I will tell you, uh, and economists uh, are wrong, just like all other human beings, but the outlook for sharply higher inflation from here uh, is pretty minimal, absent, and this is a big absent. If we end up with uh, Hezbollah coming in and we end up with uh, Iran participating, even uh, perhaps not uh, obviously, and we have a cutback in the supply of oil, and we have a sharp spike in oil that would be highly inflationary. Yeah. Um, absent that, um, what is certainly going on right now in the global economy is that Europe is teetering on recession. Certainly, the German Germany is in recession. The Chinese economy has really got problems. Their property market's absolutely a disaster. I was reading, you got a bunch of people that have mortgages, but the houses aren't complete, but they're already paying on the mortgage and got no place to move in. So there's not a lot of inflationary pressure outside of a geopolitical risk. So you can do that. I'm not sure that I would agree that it's a wise thing to do, given uh, how, when you look in the past, when short rates peak and core bonds do just terrific. I don't know when short rates have peaked, but I think it's reasonable to bet that it'll be in the next year. And if you bought a core bond fund today in a short tips and my current views turn out to be accurate, I think the core bond fund is going to be a much better investment for you. Thanks for the question. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. We're running out of time, so I'm going to go back to that article that I was talking about at the top of the hour. And, and I'm not going to get through all of these, but I want, I want to share these because I think they really – pertain to any of our listeners uh, who, shall we say, uh, are perhaps older than 50 or 55 years of age. So I talked about um, the plan to avoid mistakes. Before you talk with family members it's, it, about your legacy, it's critical to fully consider all your potential beneficiaries, and that was to do at the map. Here's the next one. Shape the conversation appropriately. A thorough discussion of family wealth may be confusing to underage heirs. Minor children should probably be kept on a need-to-know basis and given increments of information as they mature. Older heirs, however, may benefit from knowing what they will inherit so they can make plans for future assets 
that fit with their life choices and plans. This is especially true when passing on the family business. Such a legacy may affect an heir's decisions about college or other opportunities that could enhance the business's health. On the other hand, if an heir doesn't want the business, it's best to know that when the heir is young, adult, so you can make alternative succession plans. And I think this is a good one. Take your time. The family wealth conversation should not be a one-time event. Legacies can be complicated. So can the reactions of family members as they review inheritance plans. There is no reason why everything needs to be discussed in one meeting around the kitchen table. And I said earlier, if you weren't listening, you can talk about your plans without putting numbers on them if you're uncomfortable doing that. For see, No reason why everything needs to be discussed in one meeting around the kitchen table. If, for example, you choose one child to be your executor, disclose this one-on-one so the conversation can take place undistracted by the reaction of other family members. Many investment professionals, and I'm sure this includes attorneys, etc., may recommend you choose a disposition officer outside the family to be the executor. This way, siblings can communicate with an outside party as executor rather than be inclined to hound or badger an executor who is a relation. You may also want to talk about the dispensation of family heirlooms, asking each child privately if she or he has an interest in grandmother's jewelry or your valuable artwork may be easier than an open discussion when the entire family is gathered for the holidays. And I would tell you, there's a, I wish I could remember the name of the book, but there are things that may have not, that may not have huge financial value, but that they have emotional value. A child may cherish uh, a particular painting or a particular uh, piece uh, of, of kitchenware, something that may not have a lot of value, but means a lot to that person. And those things need to be need to be discussed and figured out so that uh, there's not a lot of unnecessary tension when you get to that time. And share your values. I like this. Sometimes legacies involve arrangements outside the family boundaries. Maybe you'd like to leave a portion of your stock holdings to a favorite charity. Or perhaps you've decided the summer home should be bequeathed to a nonprofit organization for housing or educational facilities. Let your children know the reasons behind the divisions of your estate. And we have run out of time. I've got more to do, and I can talk about that next week because I want to thank Garrett. And I also remind you that next Saturday after the news at 4, be sure and tune in to Money Talk. Carl Stewart is an investment advisor representative of Carl Stewart Investment Advisor Incorporated. 